Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine and creator of drjockers.com, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. This podcast is sponsored by our friends over at Paleo Valley, and I want to tell you about their amazing Super Greens, organic Super Greens powder. And the reason why I love Super Greens is because of the chlorophyll content. Most people don't know a whole lot about chlorophyll, but but it's what gives plants their green color. And it actually takes biophotons from the sun and turns them into energy within the plant. Chlorophyll is amazing for our blood purification, detoxification, and mitochondrial health. When we consume chlorophyll, it helps our mitochondria produce energy more effectively. It helps our blood flow and blood pressure function more optimally and helps oxygenate the deep tissues of our body. So it's really powerful. The problem is it's hard to eat enough plant foods to get enough chlorophyll. And a lot of people really struggle. Their digestive systems really struggle to break down a lot of the plant fibers. So one of the best ways to get a clinical dose of chlorophyll is through a super greens powder. And that's why I love the organic super greens because it's all organic. And on top of that, there's no added sugars in it. They also have a whole bunch of other uh, digestive supportive superfoods. They've got digestive enzymes, ginger, lemon, beet, a whole bunch of different superfoods that support digestion and have and are rich in polyphenols that help bring down inflammation in the body and support the microbiome. And it doesn't contain any cereal grasses, wheatgrass, barley grass, oat, rye grass. There's a lot of different individuals, particularly people with chronic inflammation and autoimmune conditions that struggle with cereal grasses because they contain a compound, a lectin, called wheat germ agglutin, which is highly inflammatory and can be very gut irritating. And so organic super greens by Paleo Valley is the only greens powder that's super rich in chlorophyll, but doesn't contain the WGA. So guys, you can check it out and save 15% off any of the Paleo Valley products, including their organic super greens. Just go to paleovalley.com forward slash jockers. That's paleovalley.com forward slash jockers to save 15% off. And what I do with the greens powder is I just take a scoop in water a day, every day. I usually have it after my lunch with a little bit of magnesium powder and it is amazing. Tastes great and gives me great energy, mental clarity, supports detoxification, good blood flow and oxygenation to really help me get everything I need from my day. So guys, check it out again, paleovalley.com forward slash jockers, and that will save you 15% off. Welcome back to the podcast. Really excited about today's topic. It is the gut microbiome and Alzheimer's disease connection. My host is Dr. David Perlmutter. He is a board certified neurologist and six-time New York Times bestselling author. Some of his great books include Grain Brain, which really goes into the connection between eating grains and how that can impact the microbiome and impact uh, inflammatory levels and how that can drive up our risk of developing neurodegenerative conditions. He also has a great book called Brain Maker, 
all about the gut microbiome and its connection to brain health. And another great book called Brainwashed. Again, he's a six times New York Times bestselling author, and he serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. You can find him at drperlmutter.com. And our topic today is the gut microbiome and Alzheimer's disease connection. So we're going to talk about how the microbiome influences brain function. We're going to talk about the relationship between the intestinal barrier and your blood-brain barrier and the relationship between leaky gut, inflammation, and brain health. So a lot of good information here. You guys are going to love this. Please share this podcast with anybody that you know and that you care about. And also, if you have not looked me up on YouTube, find Dr. David Jockers on YouTube. A lot of great videos. Uh, we take some shorts from the podcast. And also, I do some standalone trainings on the YouTube channel as well. So check that out. Be sure to subscribe to us on, on podcasts, Apple iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen, as well as YouTube channel. And also, leave us a five-star review. When you leave us a review on Apple iTunes, wherever you listen to the podcast, that helps us reach more people and impact more lives with this message. Thank you so much for doing that. Thank you for being a part of the show and part of our community. And let's go into the show. Well, Dr. Perlmutter, always great to connect with you. And you know, our topic today, again, is the gut microbiome and Alzheimer's disease connection. And you know, I know you're classically trained, obviously, as as a neurologist and going through school. How much did you learn about <laughs> the connection between the microbiome and what was happening in our gut and what's happening in our brain? None. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you know, the gut and all the things going on with the gut really was... Uh, in a, a, a different world, there would be no way to consider. And I have to say, you know, my original training was general surgery, then neurosurgery. And th similarly, there was no relationship. I recall in general surgery, I was thinking about that you and I were going to spend some time together today, thinking about uh, our time together earlier and, and, and just remembering the great lengths that we would go to to sterilize the gut prior to uh, gut surgery. And, I, and I'm, you know, I, I guess that's still done. But how when you do that, at least in experimental animal, you really compromise wound healing and you compromise the immune system and you set an animal up for increased risk of infection. So, gosh, the relationship between the gut in any way, not just the, uh, the microbiome, but in any of its functionality uh, to the brain really uh, is it's still, I think, pretty much uh, neglected as it relates to the challenges that we as neurologists face like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, MS, MS even perhaps more so uh, than Alzheimer's is strongly related to a dysregulated immune system. And that focuses our attention to the gut. Got to get over it because that's reality. Yeah, for sure. And so when, when along your journey, did you start looking into <laughs> what was happening in the gut? Hard to say. I mean, I wrote uh, a book called Brainmaker that I think really was many considered to be way out there because with that book, we explored the, the gut microbiome. That's the, the organisms living within the gut and their uh, genetic material and their metabolites and how that might affect the brain. And, you know, that, that was really, uh, I would say ahead of the curve, but way ahead of the curve because it took a long time for that book to really start to gain its footing because the world still wasn't ready for it. You know, we're gonna have a conversation today that reviews 
the up-to-date science that is really quite fascinating, not just from the science perspective about what's been discovered, but I think more importantly, that it opens the door for us to be very uh, proactive in terms of keeping people healthy with respect to their brains, and also interactive in terms of what we are able to do uh, as it relates to helping people get through their brain-related disorders by looking at what is going on in the gut and how we can affect change. Yeah, for sure. It's a really important topic. And uh, when we're looking at neurodegenerative conditions, dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, so this is something obviously you've taken care of many, many different individuals with. What is conventional, you know, basically the conventional plan for these these individuals? This is a really fast-growing group of conditions. And so what is modern medicine doing for these individuals right now? Well, it is a fast-growing uh, situation. I mean, we have about 6.2 to 6.4 million Americans who've already been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. That number is predicted to triple by the year 2030. Uh, it's a, you know, one in three seniors is uh, carries some form of dementia. So it's a very, very big problem. It's a far more threatening problem than COVID ever was. I'm not downplaying COVID. I'm simply saying we're not giving attention to Alzheimer's that we should. Uh, but that said, the the mainstream approach has been really entrenched in being reactive, not proactive. There is precious little ever discussed that focuses on the notion that you know, everything we do that is involving our metabolic health has a huge role to play in determining whether we will or not uh, experience degeneration of the brain that we characterize as senile dementia of the Alzheimer's type. Whether it's keeping our blood sugars where they need to be, our insulin sensitivity, our uric acid levels, uh, these things are all fundamentally important as it relates to balancing our metabolism and face it uh, Alzheimer's is a metabolic issue of the brain. It's glucose homeostasis dysregulated. That's the problem. It is not, it is not a consequence of the accumulation of beta amyloid. I mean, this past year, uh, we've seen two drugs uh, receive temporary or emergency, if you will, FDA approval, and these are anti-amyloid drugs. Uh, that are designed either to reduce the formation of beta amyloid in the brain or, or help clear beta amyloid from the brain. They don't work. They're associated with significant and devastating side effects. And just the day before yesterday, the data was reanalyzed that was published originally. Uh, one a study from uh, the uh, New England Journal of Medicine, the data has been reanalyzed demonstrating that both types of drugs are associated with significant shrinkage of the brain. Hmm. We weren't told that when the studies were first published. That came out two days ago, and that's really very, very concerning. We know that uh, significant side effects are present with these drugs, like what are called ARIA, um, amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, where people who are on the two most common forms of these new drugs develop areas of the brain that have small bleeds and swelling. And to me, it's interesting that they're called amyloid-related imaging abnormalities. We never saw them until the drugs were used. So they're not amyloid-related. Uh, they're related to the use of the medication. They are brand new. Now neurologists are talking about area, you know, as it, uh, and as if it's related to the amyloid suddenly waking up and being devastating in the brain. 
Amyloid is a downstream consequence of things going on metabolically in the brain, uh, like problems with glucose homeostasis. And, you know, we'll get to the relationship of glucose metabolism in the brain to the gut bacteria. Who knew? What a stretch uh, in just a moment. But I, I really want to hammer uh, home uh, the point that it's so much in our interest to avoid a disease for which there is no treatment by keeping our metabolism intact. And, you know, you've written extensively about, for example, fasting ketogenic diets, and they are so important to, you know, these are critically important tools to allow people to regain appropriate set points of their insulin sensitivity and blood sugar regulation that have a huge role to play in keeping you away from brain degeneration. And, you know, when you ask people what they fear most, uh, according to the NIH, it is dementia. It's not one form or another of cancer. Uh, it's not any other of the degenerative conditions, coronary artery disease, for example. It's dementia, having a situation where you can't make up your own mind about what to do or even care for yourself. And these are metabolic issues. So, um, you know, Desmond Tutu had a famous quote. I'll, I'll paraphrase it. He said, you know, um, it, yes, it's important to take people out of the river, but it's more important to go upstream and find out why they're falling in in the first place. And that's what we need to do. And, um, you know, we now have our arms around the fact that an important player in keeping our metabolism, that's our goal for the brain, on track is to look at what is going on in the gut of all places. And yes, to get to your original question, that's a long way for neurology uh, to stretch, that's for sure. Yeah, again, so most neurologists are focused on the beta amyloid theory, like you had you had talked about, which is correlated with Alzheimer's, but it's not causative of Alzheimer's. That's and right. so we're looking at causative factors, like you mentioned, glucose dysregulation, so blood sugar metabolic uh, disturbances. And one of the first places we have to look when we're looking at what's happening with metabolism is the gut and the gut microbiome. And so let's talk more about that, the relationship between the gut microbiome and our insulin sensitivity, our glucose metabolism, and uh, overall metabolic health. Sure. But before we do that, uh, a thought came to mind as you were just asking yeah. that question. And that is, what's the first thing we do? What should we do when metabolism is threatened and blood sugar is going up? Well, we reach for medicines. What's your go-to medicine? Well, is it, you know, whatever, a sulfonylurea, is it metformin? Whatever it may be, that's the go-to response from mainstream medicine. That's treating the smoke and ignoring the fire. I recall a couple of years ago, I was speaking at a very mainstream uh, CME, risk management kind of a thing in New Jersey, probably three or 400 mainstream doctors. And I said, what's the go-to treatment to treat diabetes? What do you do? And hands went up, oh, I like metformin. I like uh, you know various types of drugs. And uh, I said, okay, everybody now put your hands down because no one has offered up any idea as it relates to treating diabetes. Because you're not, you're not treating the diabetes. You're treating the manifestation that is the blood sugar. How could I say that? I asked another question. What happens when you stop the drug that you are so fond of? Well, they knew the answer because in a couple of days, the blood sugar goes up and you are back to where you started. So did you treat the underlying problem? No, you didn't. You treated one of the symptoms, one of the manifestations, like blood pressure, for example. We can 
bring somebody's blood pressure down. But the moment you let up on their calcium channel blocker or their beta block, whatever you're giving them, the blood pressure spikes again. Did you treat the underlying problem? Uh, no, you didn't. So, you know, this is a challenge. And for us to say that underlying factors that relate to brain degeneration are things like inflammation and dysregulated metabolism, and importantly, that the genesis of these problems may well reside in the gut, wow, that's a big, big stretch, I think, for most uh, mainstream physicians. Getting back to the very first question you asked me, why? Because we weren't taught that uh, in medical school, in neurology school. Uh, it, it never happened. And, and to be fair, back in my day, we didn't know that. Um, yeah. not, not that there wasn't some inkling of good bacteria, even in those days. I mean, you know, Menchnikov's research was uh, an awful long time ago, but you know, uh, the mainstream would like us to believe that there are a whole panorama of drugs to use to treat our ills. We're gonna focus on Alzheimer's. Let's be clear, there is no drug to treat that problem. Let's be clear, there are characteristic changes in the gut bacteria that are seen in association with not only the diagnosis of Alzheimer's, but its severity. In other words, changes in the gut bacteria correlate to how demented an individual is. So I think that it would be interesting to maybe unpack why that may be the case. What's going on with our trillions of bacterial friends within the gut in terms of how they're influencing various things in the body that are playing out and causing either a wonderfully healthy brain, uh, a great mood, less depression, uh, or you know the contrary, which would be a brain that's degenerated, that's not functioning well, uh, mood disorders like um, depression, for example. And let me just say uh, parenthetically that the mechanisms that are involved in dysregulating our mood, like inflammation, like uh, changes in uh, levels of certain good things for the brain, we'll talk about what they may be like BDNF, are very similar to what's going on that are associated with Alzheimer's disease. Both depression and Alzheimer's are fundamentally inflammatory. And it's the inflammation that is so threatening to the, the, the prime reason that our brain degenerates, and that is uh, difficulties in uh, using glucose, becoming insulin resistant, and uh, as was so well characterized in, in 2020 in the Journal of the American Medical Association, arguing against this beta amyloid theory and really in favor of the proximal event being dysregulated metabolism. So what's going on in the gut that uh, needs to happen to keep our brains healthy? Well, our gut bacteria, the trillions of gut bacteria that live there, are we have a, a symbiotic relationship for, for, uh, going on. They're grateful as can be to have a nice, warm, dark place to live where they get fed every day. They're so happy uh, that we give them this home. And so they give back to us. What do they give back to us? They make various things that are important for the body and certainly for the brain. Uh, they make the neuro some neurotransmitters, uh, what we call the monoaminergic neurotransmitters, things like serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine. Uh, they make various vitamins that are good for the body and certainly good for the brain. They make uh, lots of what are called short chain fatty acids. These 
have traditionally been looked upon as alternative fuel sources, but we now recognize that these short-chain fatty acids uh, that are produced by our gut bacteria, yes, they serve as fuel, but they also serve uh, as powerful signaling molecules, changing gene expression uh, in the brain. Now, what did I just say? I said that uh, products of our gut bacteria change gene expression in the brain. Our bacteria are moment to moment regulating the functionality of the brain. Holy Toledo. Not only that, but they are intimately involved uh, in regulating inflammation. Inflammation being such an important mechanism. We'll talk about that in, in, I think we're gonna have a lot to cover. But one thing I just wanna mention as relates to inflammation, and this will be on the quiz, (laughs) that is that Higher levels of inflammation when our gut bacteria are in disarray, and we can explain the mechanism, gut leakiness, if you will. But when that happens, we threaten the body's ability to produce something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Now, what in the world is that? That is a powerful nutrient uh, for the brain, basically. It is... um, it's, a, it's like a hormone that is powerfully influential and keeps brain cells functioning, keeps them functional, allows them to replicate. In other words, increases the growth of new brain cells. Who wouldn't want that? It decreases the rate at which our brain cells are destroyed. And it also fosters what is called synaptic plasticity. Basically a fancy way of saying how brain cells communicate with each other, which is fundamental for how the brain works and how we develop memories. That's what BDNF Hmm. does. We wanna do everything we can to keep BDNF doing its job. We love BDNF. BDNF is enhanced when uh, we exercise, for example. It's one of the most powerful things about exercise as it relates to the brain and likely explains why uh, exercise is associated with increased growth of new brain cells and decreased risk of getting Alzheimer's in the first place. When we have inflammation in the body, it threatens our body's ability to make BDNF. So inflammation and BDNF are on a teeter-totter. Higher levels of inflammation shuts down BDNF and vice versa. Higher levels of BDNF are associated with lower levels of inflammation. So we've been talking about this inflammation and in the context of the gut, where in the heck is it coming from? Well, it turns out that another gift uh, from our gut bacteria is their role in preserving the integrity of the gut lining. Now, we have to understand that inside the gut, that's pretty much like a sewer. I mean, that's where the gut stuff goes when we no longer need it, but it's pretty dirty inside the gut. We have to have a barrier to keep that dirty stuff away from the rest of our bodies. And that is a lining, only one cell thick uh, of the entire uh, gastrointestinal system from the mouth all the way through to the anus, one cell thick. We desperately depend on the integrity of that lining to keep out the bad things while at the same time allow us to absorb the good things, the nutrients, the water, et cetera, the great, wonderful products that our bacteria are producing that I've already talked about, the vitamins, the short-chain fatty acids, et cetera. So we depend uh, moment to moment desperately on the integrity of the lining of the gut. And the, the maintenance 
of that lining is another gift from our gut bacteria. So we wanna do everything we can to keep our gut bacteria healthy. When that integrity is threatened, when we have less diversity of our gut bacteria, when we threaten their ability to produce the various chemicals that they produce, when we threaten their diversity through a number of, of means that we'll talk about hopefully, then that gut lining is threatened. And when that gut lining is threatened, then various bacterial products make their way through that uh, lining now that it's more permeable than it should be. And that immediately uh, is challenged by our immune system. Uh, it's, it's sensed by various cells that uh, lie just underneath the gut lining. And this information is transmitted throughout the body and ends up threatening our immune system and turns on inflammation. That inflammation threatens the brain through a number of, of uh, mechanisms. First, just to reiterate, it turns down BDNF. And remember, BDNF is something we desperately want. Second, inflammation threatens insulin functionality, about the worst thing you could do for your brain. And the third thing I'm going to hold off talking about for a moment, because it, it's going to require some unpacking. But I, what I want to say is that here is a mechanism that then connects what's going on in the gut through increased gut permeability to increased inflammation, which is powerfully threatening to the brain. Alzheimer's is an inflammatory disorder, as is MS, as is Parkinson's. And this inflammation is incredibly threatening uh, to, to the brain and really uh, in, in so many ways. Now, we recognize now that depression uh, is an inflammatory disease. It's, you know, it's, un, it's underpinning is inflammation. You know, the World Health Organization uh, estimates that right now there are about 350 million people suffering from major depressive disorder, an inflammatory issue. That number is climbing. Uh, we certainly saw a big uptick uh, with COVID mm -hmm. and inflammatory disorder, but we're watching the uptick around the world and the uptick in Alzheimer's disease in relation to inflammation as we watch at the same time the global shift in nutrition, what used to be called the standard American diet, becoming the so-called Western diet, now really uh, a global diet that is so focused on ultra-processed foods. Those types of foods, I mean, here in America, in adults, 58% of calories that adults consume in America on average are derived from these ultra-processed foods mm -hmm. that do two important, well, let's say three important things. First, they threaten the gut bacteria. That's the last thing you wanna do. There's no good fiber there for them to, to digest for us and to use for their metabolism. Second, these ultra-processed foods dramatically increase inflammation and third, they also increase something called uric acid that we will talk about uh, perhaps later. Uh, and let me add a fourth, you know, these are foods that are pretty devoid of good things, of vitamins and other important minerals and nutrients that we need. So, you know, we're now connecting. What we've just done is we're connecting the global shift in nutrition through the shifts, the changes, the threats to the gut bacteria to the level of the lining of the gut, increasing permeability, translated in the body to increased inflammation and immune dysregulation. And ultimately that turns out to be an incredibly powerful threat to the human brain that is very much upstream of 
lack of acetylcholine or the accumulation of beta amyloid. Yeah, it's a really good breakdown right there. I just wanted to interrupt this podcast to tell you guys about how important electrolytes are. We all need them, and that includes sodium, potassium, and magnesium, which play a key role in energy production. You see a lot of the fatigue and brain fog that people are experiencing is actually due to low electrolytes. And then when you sweat, or if you're practicing a low carb diet or, or intermittent fasting, your electrolyte needs actually increase. And if the electrolytes aren't replaced, it's common to experience headaches, muscle cramps, and fatigue. Now, a lot of people out there will go and they'll drink sports drinks, but the average sports drink has 29 grams of sugar and it doesn't have a science-backed ratio of electrolytes. And that is why I wanted to introduce you to my friends over at Element. Element is a healthy alternative because it's a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means a lot of electrolytes with no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited for those following a keto, low carb, or paleo diet. Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio with none of the junk, no sugar coloring, artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, just electrolytes and stevia, and it gets results. You will notice uh, it's refreshing, and you'll notice it pick up in your energy and your mental clarity when you drink it. Now, as a member of our community, Element has a very special offer for you. You can get a free sample pack with any order on their site. Each sample pack contains a number of great flavors. I really like the citrus, the raspberry, the orange salt, and the watermelon are all fantastic. They also have an unflavored. So if you don't want any stevia, they have an unflavored as well. And so when you get the sample pack, you get to try all of them out. And so all you need to do is go to the website, drinklmnt.com forward slash DR Jockers. Again, that's drinklmnt.com forward slash DR Jockers. And when you order anything on their site, you'll get a free sample pack to try out all the different flavors. You guys are going to love it. Check it out again. Drinklmnt.com forward slash DR Jockers. Check it out today. One more thing to add with those ultra processed foods, they often contain a lot of chemicals, maybe antibiotics, glyphosate, things like that, that will kill off a lot of these good bacteria and create an environment that's uh, ripe for bacteria that are producing a lot of endotoxins, a lot of inflammatory compounds uh, to, pre to be produced as well. And I always say, you know, kind of summarize a point you made, good bacteria will actually eat toxins and poop out B vitamins, short chain fatty acids, all kinds of good compounds and bad bacteria, or at least if you have, it's not really any bad bacteria, but when you have an imbalance, they're oftentimes eating nutrients, right? So not allowing us to get those nutrients and pooping out all, di all different types of endotoxins and inflammatory promoting uh, agents. And so really important that we keep the balance there in the gut microbiome. Now you had mentioned, obviously the intestinal barrier, how that's just one cell, right? Yeah. And there's a relationship there between what's happening there at the the gut, the intestinal barrier, and then also the blood-brain barrier as well. That's right. And, um, you know, barrier function is really important in the human body to keep things where they need to be. I mentioned that within the gut, you know, we consider that to be like a sewer, and it is. Mm. Uh, when, when we experience trauma, for example, that lacerates the gut, 
that that's generally until modern times uh, that was generally a an immediately lethal condition because you spill those contents into the in, mm. into the abdomen you're finished and there's yeah, no sepsis. way to recover from that uh these days you know you get somebody to the operating room as quickly as you can you clean out the belly and you uh you know you sew up the gut and, and they have a chance you use antibiotics that are in this situation clearly appropriate i think it's an important point to make mm -hmm. uh, it, it takes me to a place of recognizing our incredible overusage of antibiotics that threatens you know one of the many many threats to the diversity and functionality of our gut bacteria you know you have uh a sniffle and a cough and you go to a walk-in clinic if you don't walk out of there with a prescription for a z-pack or something you feel like well gee whiz why did i even bother going and i think you know the the doc in the box feels like he or she's got to do that exactly for that reason you got to do something you know colds are viruses and um you know bacteria uh, killing them with antibiotics doesn't make sense for a person that's having a cold. Now there maybe is you know a, a time and a place for some uh, antiviral, newer antiviral medications. I get that, and there may be a place for uh, prophylactic antibiotic use in somebody at higher risk for developing into pneumonia mm -hmm. from a cold. But by and large, you know, I got oh I got a big presentation to give, or I got to get back to work, doc. I need something right now. Why would you get an antibiotic? Why would you threaten uh, your gut bacteria when you need them most? You need their function at this time critically uh, more than ever. And here you're using a weapon of mass microbial destruction. And you know what's going on with kids with their sore throats and earaches? Uh, they get you know in teaspoon after teaspoon of the the red liquid. You know we as parents have seen that for years and years, and it's really by and large what doesn't need to happen. And I learned that lesson. Uh, when I, it was our daughter, I think she was three, we went to the pediatrician and he said, you need to put her on this antibiotic. She has an ear infection. And my wife said, uh, can we just wait? Can we just wait one day? And I was kicking and screaming. Oh, she's going to perforate her eardrums. She's going to be, you know, all these issues. After a day, she was better. Two days later, much better. And after that, we forgot about it. But I didn't forget about it. It was a very good lesson. And it, at that point, I wasn't really thinking, oh, we're threatening her gut bacteria. But it, it was a powerful lesson in terms of our incredible overusage of antibiotics. Antibiotics are just one of the many drugs that threaten the functionality and the diversity of our gut bacteria. Acid-blocking drugs that are over-the-counter even are profoundly detrimental to the gut bacteria and their functionality uh, and have been associated with a dramatic increased risk in people who take them regularly with stroke and the development of Alzheimer's disease. People who take these acid blocking drugs called proton pump inhibitors that are available over the counter have at least a twofold increased risk of developing dementia and a just about as high a risk as having a stroke. Increased risk as a consequence of being on these drugs for a long period of time. And yet, television commercials will tell you uh, that if you have trouble tolerating that sausage sandwich, just pop a couple of whatever it is over the counter and everything's gonna be great. No, you don't wanna compromise your stomach acid by and large. You know, if you have a gastric tumor 
or if you have Zollinger Ellison syndrome or something like that, yeah, by all means, you know, you're going to want to reduce your stomach acid. But for indigestion, which goes, you know, more formally the term acid indigestion, by and large, I'm not getting it, you know, that people need to compromise their stomach acid. What does that do? It changes the pH, the level of acid-base balance, not just in the stomach, but through the entire gastrointestinal system. When you change the pH, you dramatically shift the environment in which our gut bacteria live. You change which bacteria will survive and which will perish. And, you know, we see what happens downstream with these significant increased risk uh, for bad conditions, stroke and Alzheimer's. They're bad situations because we've shifted what's going on uh, in the gut. Non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen, dramatic effects upon the, uh, the gut bacteria. So when we see increased risk, for example, of diabetes in people taking various drugs and wonder why that would be, I think it really causes us to think twice about what various drugs are doing that result in changes to the gut bacteria, which have downstream effects in terms of metabolism and inflammation. Yeah, it's a really good summary there of some of these major drugs that people are taking, some of the most prescribed medications out there that a lot of people are on and their impact on the gut microbiome and how they can also impact brain health. For example, those proton pump inhibitors, very much associated with B12 deficiencies because you need good stomach acid to absorb B12, zinc, right? Things like that. And we talked a lot about zinc with COVID. And so you need good stomach acid in order to absorb zinc effectively from the food that you're eating. So obviously we wanna, we wanna do everything we can to optimize stomach acid levels, which is what we try to do in functional health, functional nutrition, functional medicine. Um, but the reason why people are using these PPIs is because they work, right? Like when people take them, they don't have acid reflux, but, but getting rid of that symptom doesn't mean you're healthier. And that's the issue there. That's right. And, you know, let's go upstream and ask, well, why are you having gastroesophageal reflux in the first place? Probably the, the, the biggest issue is a big belly. Mm. You know, when you have a big uh, belly pushing down on your stomach, increasing the pressure, it's going to cause reflux into the esophagus. esophagus. And the esophagus lining is ill-prepared to deal with the uh, incredible acidity of stomach contents, unlike the stomach itself. So when that uh, gastric fluid uh, regurgitates into the esophagus, it hurts and ultimately can cause, uh, you know, changes, Barrett's esophagus changes in these cells and ultimately could lead to cancer. So. Uh, it, it is something quite serious. We know that uh, the emptying th uh, of the stomach is enhanced with fat and is compromised with carbs. So eating um, more fat and less processed carbohydrates also helps the stomach uh, mm. to empty itself. So it's really, it comes back to nutrition. Uh, more fat, who knew? More fat turns out to be the better choice as it relates to people who have that. And that'll help with their big belly as well, help them sleep better and uh, help with their metabolism by eating more fat. To be clear, I don't know what we'll do this today, but the type of fat that is consumed is really mm -hmm. fundamental. And um, you know, obviously there are good fats and bad fats. They're pro-inflammatory uh, fats that have been modified and they're fats that work uh, to not only reduce inflammation because of their omega-3 content, but also contain uh, various things like polyphenols that help, for example, our metabolism. 
help with our blood sugar regulation, uh, help with uh, the, the increased growth of our mitochondria, the increased activity of something called autophagy in the body to help us rid our bodies of defective cellular parts. So, uh, you know, I guess that would be a discussion yeah. in and of itself. Yeah, let's go into that. What are some of the okay. healthy fats we should be using and, and the fats that we should be avoiding? Right. Well, um, I, you know, when you go down the grocery store aisles and you look on the shelves and you see, gosh, row after row of these wonderfully uh, looking uh, labels of uh, various fats, you know, corn oil and uh, canola oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, these bottles are on the shelf for month after month. They're generally clear, uh, you know, recognizing now that, you know, these oils are very sensitive to light and yet these bottles are clear so you can see how beautiful they look. And these oils have been highly processed. <clears throat> They're very rich in pro-inflammatory omega-6 fatty acids, uh, deficient in the very polyphenols that I just uh, spoke about and really deficient in the brain-supportive, immune-supportive, cellular-supportive omega-3s that our bodies so desperately need. And it's not just that we buy these uh, oils and use them in our cooking, but that's what industrial cooking uses as well. These are highly modified in such a way that um, when they are incorporated into our cell membranes, they lead to defective membranes of our cells. So these cells are less able to communicate effectively with one another less able to receive chemical transmitters from other cells and from other parts of the body, which is fundamental to how a cell works. Not just our stationary cells in that make up our organs, but the cells that move around our bodies, like our immune cells, for example. The brain is made of cells, we call them neurons. The membranes of neurons are made from the fats that are available for their construction. The fats that are available to build membranes in our brain cells are the fats that we consume. They don't come from the air. So we have to really drill down to focus in on consuming the right fats for the brain. Structurally, perhaps the most important fat for the brain is something called docosahexaenoic acid or DHA, an important omega-3. Turns out that humans don't make really any DHA to speak of. We make a tiny bit of DHA by and large the DHA that is in our bodies is a consequence of what we've consumed, either in the foods that we eat, like fatty fish, for example, although there are uh, some levels of DHA in, in fatty animals, uh, land animals as well, uh, or that we decide to take as a nutritional supplement. And I'm all in favor of that. Take a fish oil or uh, krill oil, or even if, if you're vegetarian, there are algae-derived DHA supplements as well. Oddly enough, the richest source of DHA in nature is nothing I've mentioned. The richest source of DHA in nature is human breast milk. Why would that be? Because it's so fundamentally important for the developing brain. Uh, so think about that. That's what triggers that brain to develop, to build healthy brain cells. It turns on the production of BDNF. We talked about that earlier, that nurtures brain cells and protects them. It actually acts as nature's COX-2 inhibitor, and that's the type of drugs that are created to reduce inflammation. So the DHA that we're taking by eating fish or that infants get when they're breastfed, uh, or we get by taking a, a DHA fish oil supplement, for example, work to reduce that dreaded mechanism, inflammation. So really very important. Uh, I mean, then we can move on to 
foods like olive oil, high in monounsaturated fat, uh, high in omega-3s, and high in polyphenols. And, you know, we tend to reduce the fats that we consume to, well, are they omega-6 or omega-3s? And maybe, uh, you know, are they saturated versus monounsaturated or polyunsaturated? Or um, looking at them, are the, you know, are, do they contain trans fats, uh, et cetera? But natural, wonderful oils like uh, olive oil, for example, contain other things, a host of other uh, components like the polyphenols. Uh, and these are plant-derived chemicals that you know, may have evolved to allow the plants to be uh, more able to respond to environmental stress. Um, for example, um, you know, they, they taste bad, polyphenols. They don't taste bad. They, they have a particular yeah. taste that not everybody likes. Yeah. It's that uh, in the back of your throat, maybe five or 10 seconds after you consume a really fresh extra virgin olive oil, you get that little bite in the back of your throat. You know that's a good oil for you, that those polyphenols are just talking to your physiology, that you're amplifying activity of pathways like AMP kinase to help control your blood sugar, to help you burn fat, to help uh, improve immune function, to help improve the function of your mitochondria. Uh, we get you know, these polyphenols from a number of, of places in nature, but they're plant derived. Um, and it is associated with this not so wonderful taste of, of raw vegetables sometimes. The, and you know, the more aggressive that is, the better actually. Uh, one uh, that I'm particularly fond of, uh, a bioflavonoid, is called quercetin. Mm -hmm. So quercetin-rich foods uh, like uh, red onions, for example, there is some quercetin, you know, many, many vegetables, the cruciferous vegetables especially. I'm very fond of quercetin because it does what I just described. It stimulates this pathway called the AMP kinase pathway that is good for our metabolism. It's good for the brain. Uh, helps reduce uric acid dramatically. That's important for the brain. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, it, and is a very powerful tonic for the mitochondria, the energy producers within our cells. So quercetin-rich foods are important. I take quercetin as a nutritional supplement. It's one of my top-tier supplements because it it's just so good. But again, understand that this bitterness that these... Uh, components uh, uh, in, infuse the plants with are survival mechanisms for the plants. When they taste like that, insects are less likely to eat that kale or eat that uh, broccoli sprout. You know, when you chew a broccoli sprout, uh, it's, it doesn't taste great at all. But what are you doing? You're, you're releasing an enzyme called myrosinase uh, and you're acting on a chemical. That myrosinase acts on a chemical called glucoraphanin to produce something called sulforaphane that tastes bad. It really tastes bad. That's why when you chew broccoli sprouts, you're saying to yourself, God, this is not so pleasant. <laughs> but that sulforaphane is incredibly powerful in terms of your health, incredibly important in terms of antioxidant function, reducing inflammation. Um, numerous studies have demonstrated higher uh, levels of foods that will provide sulforaphane being associated with a reduced risk of cancer, so we really like these uh, plant-based products that have such incredible uh, biological effects within us humans. And we've been eating them for as long as we've been walking the planet. And every plant that we eat has a positive nurturing effect 
on our gut bacteria. So I think it's important as a takeaway that, you know, over the years we've talked about, well, you should have five or six or seven servings of fruits and vegetables a day. And it's interesting and that's a good thing, but I think more importantly, it's the number of different vegetables that you consume Mm -hmm. because vegetables contain bacterial and bacterial components that are also active, not just active living bacteria, but their components can still have good biological activity within us. So yeah, focus on eating a lot of vegetables, but focus on diversity and color, various colors of the plants that you consume. You know, purple uh, vegetables, uh, orange vegetables, with uh, beta carotene, obviously your greens and you want your fiber because that's what our gut bacteria want. Our consumption of fiber is at the critical low level compared to, you know, even a few hundred years ago, and certainly compared to our hunter-gatherer ancestors. And we, yes, we do know what they consumed. We are able to look at the genetic signatures of their fossilized poop called fecaliths. We are able to find our, you know, ancestors from 10,000 years ago, their bones, We can look at their teeth. We can look at the calculus around their teeth and determine what their oral microbiomes look like because the genetic signatures of the bacteria in their mouths are preserved in the calculus, in this stuff around their teeth. And we can look at their fossilized poop and determine what their gut bacteria look like. And it turns out that it's very, very similar to certain populations still living on our planet Uh, that are basically non-Westernized, that are still hunting and gathering. I just wanted to interrupt this podcast to tell you about one of my favorite supplements. It's called Curcumin Gold. You guys know I'm a huge advocate of turmeric, this Indian spice, and the different polyphenols and compounds in there that help reduce inflammation. The most well-studied is curcumin. Curcumin has been shown to outperform your typical non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen, Advil, and Tylenol in many different studies by reducing pain and inflammation without the harmful side effects. And what I love about the curcumin gold is that it contains turmeric curcumin extract. It contains vegan omega-3s made from algae, the long chain uh, omega-3 called DHA, which is so powerful for the brain, so powerful for heart health and reducing inflammation. It also has ginger oil. Those carefully selected ingredients support healthy joint function and address the root cause of inflammation within your body. Now, trust me when I say you won't find anything else on the market quite like this. In fact, my friends over at Purality Health have a patented formula that utilizes something called micelle liposomal technology which delivers nutrients directly into your bloodstream. And it's proven to be 800% more efficient than traditional supplements. Even better, it's backed by a 180-day money-back guarantee. And today, we have a 30% off coupon just for you. Visit PurityHealth.com. Use the coupon DRJ to access 30% off today. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. And I want to go back to that because obviously a lot of our ancestors or the ancestors that they're studying this fossilized poop, they're finding a high level of diversity. And I know you've used that term. And the diversity basically is meaning just the amount, the number, overall number of different types of species. And in our society today, most people, particularly those that are eating kind of the same 12 foods, 
right? And and throwing in some ultra processed foods on a on a on a regular basis have a much lower level of diversity. And how is that impacting our health? Yeah, and and I think that it, it's great to talk about that. We talk about how uh, our gut diversity is compared to others. It's called the beta uh, diversity, and higher uh, levels of beta diversity is what we want. And we nurture diversity of our gut bacteria by having diversity of our food, job one. And number two, we certainly wanna minimize the threats to our gut bacteria as we look at the medicines we take, uh, the water that we drink that might have traces of chlorine in it, uh, and and so many other factors in our day-to-day lives. For example, uh, changes in the gut bacteria are brought on by lack of uh, restorative sleep, by stress, by lack of time spent in nature, by lack of socialization, who knew? By lack of having a pet. Hmm. Uh, and, and when we look at rates of, of children that have asthma and kids that have a dog versus kids that don't have a dog, it's pretty dramatic. Look at rates of, um, of anxiety in, in city-dwelling kids versus uh, kids that have more diversity by virtue of the fact they live in the country and they're in the dirt. I mean, our parents kept us out of the dirt. Um, but it turns out that, you know, this is the hygiene hypothesis that was at least originally used to describe, you know, our risk for certain diseases. But I think we can extrapolate our obsession with hygiene uh, to um, things like Alzheimer's. What, you know, you and I began talking about earlier on. A great study uh, by a researcher named Dr. Molly Fox, I actually had her on my podcast, um, looked at the rates of uh, at how people were so involved in hygiene as measured by the amount of parasites in their gut uh, in various countries. I think she looked at a hundred different countries and compared that to the uh, incidence of Alzheimer's and the higher rates of parasite infection, therefore lower levels of hygiene significantly dramatically reduce rates of Alzheimer's countries like the United States where Alzheimer's is so prevalent, uh, have much lower levels of gut parasites. And are, you know, we're, you know, we have to sterilize things. Uh, I was thinking about this at the gym this morning and you know, there's, there's still a thing where when you're done with the equipment, you have to wipe it with some sterile infused cloth, uh, you know, that you throw away everywhere that you touch so that your germs can't go to the next person. Mm. You know, I, I know that's a bit of an outgrowth of COVID uh, as if, well, we'll leave it at that. But, uh, you know, we're ger- still exceedingly germophobic. And yet, um, you know, our lives depend on the germs that live upon us and within us, moment to moment. You know, in, in a laboratory animal, notobiotic um, rodent, for example, that is deprived of having gut bacteria, that animal is at extremely high risk for uh, troubles with immunity and infection and will die. So uh, it's nice to say, oh yeah, we're grateful for our gut bacteria. They make B vitamins, et cetera. But without them, we would perish. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that, uh, you know, there's 10 to the 18 yeah. uh, of these microorganisms. That's 10 with 18 zeros after it uh, living there. And, you know, 99% of the genetic material in your body, in my body, is not our stuff that we got from mom and dad and all who have come before, it's within the various organisms living upon us and within us. It's pretty powerful to think about that. Let me yeah. give you one more thing to think about because <laughs> I'm putting a lot on your plate and I think, uh, 
You know, we've been talking for years about this incredibly large number of bacterial organisms living upon us and within us and the role that they play in terms of our health. And the number is very, very high. We just quoted it. But embrace the notion that there are 10 times as many viruses in your gut as there are bacteria. Now, these viruses are directly involved in regulating the replication and the metabolic function and the diversity of the gut bacteria. So now we've talked about the microbiome that looks at these microorganisms. We should be talking as well about the biome, the viral uh, particles that live within us that outnumber our bacteria 10 to one. We call these bacteriophages because uh, yeah. to some degree they actually eat bacteria and insert their genetic material into the bacteria. And by and large, that's a very, very positive event. You say viruses, people get the willies. It's like yeah. saying germs. Uh, but the reality is that viruses are deeply invested in our gut uh, situation and are by and large there keeping, keeping the machinery running, if you will. Think about that, that our lives, our balance of our immune system, our metabolic health, yeah, it's dependent upon the function of the bacteria, whose function is dependent upon the health and vitality and functionality of the viruses uh, that live within us. And, you know, these bacteriophages have been known since the, since the late 1920s and uh, have been used uh, in industry throughout the world uh, since the 1960s to help reduce certain bacterial populations in industry, in food production. Uh, and now we see uh, probiotics offered for consumers that are enriched with positive viruses, bacteriophages that are good because they amplify the, uh, the number and functionality of certain organisms, bacteria that are actually good for us. Yeah, this is such an interesting discussion because you know, for the most part, we think parasites bad, but like you had mentioned, people with higher amount of parasites actually had lower uh, rates of Alzheimer's and neurodegenerative conditions. We were told you know, many years ago that bacteria, all bacteria were bad. Now we realize, hey, bacteria are so important that we're actually taking supplements with probiotics, sup, uh, you know, obviously supplemental bacteria. And most people out there, I would say, you know, if you ask a hundred people, probably 98 of them would say, if not 99, would say viruses are bad, right? That they're bad. You don't want viruses. But again, <laughs> we've got 10 times more viruses in our gut than we have bacteria. And there are certain viruses, obviously, that can be problematic. There are bacteria, there's different microorganisms, yeast, the, uh, candida, that if it overgrows and it's imbalanced can cause problems. But ultimately, what I think you're getting around to is it's really about creating resiliency, resiliency in our gut, resiliency in our mitochondria within our cells so that we can adapt to whatever microorganisms that we're coming in contact with on a regular basis. That's right. You know, you, you toss mitochondria in and mitochondria are basically bacteria as well. You know, they took up residence within what became eukaryotic cells. How many million years ago uh, is unclear or a billion years ago. But that said, um, you know, you look at a mitochondrion and it's, it has its own unique DNA that is circular DNA, much like you see in a, a bacterium. So um, I think it's fair game to include mitochondria as we talk about mm. the microorganisms in the human body. I mean, and there sure are a lot, you know, you can have a thousand micro 
uh, mitochondria rather, in one brain cell. Uh, generally, the more active metabolically a, a cell or a tissue is, the more mitochondria that you, you will find. So uh, it's, it's a very big discussion. And, and think of, in our short time together today, how far we've come. We've come from the notion of you know bacteria being germed, get rid of them, to the notion that, well, hold on, uh, we need to reframe this. And now, as it relates to viruses as well, that by and large, the viruses that live within us are co-evolved with us and are there doing good things for us. And uh, it, it, it certainly um, challenges our notions about what's good and bad. And, you know, you brought up yeast, you brought up parasites. And again, uh, you know, people by and large who have higher levels of various parasites tend to be more immunologically balanced. I know that's a big statement because it didn't, you know, I didn't uh, characterize the type of parasites. Certainly there are some parasites uh, that can be threatening. We all know that. But there are other parasites that uh, actually do some good things. Uh, when we see a work of, for example, Dr. Sidney Baker, where he inoculates people with various autoimmune conditions, giving them whipworm eggs to give them whipworms, parasites, um, and uh, having great results. So uh, this is... Um, you know, this is another type of therapy. You know, often we wouldn't say worms are parasites per se, but it's it's something to think about that we need to take a step back and recognize that our relationship with uh, these organisms uh, has been going on and has been mutually beneficial for a very, very long time. How do we inoculate our guts with good bacteria? Well, you know, as hunter-gatherers, we probably w wouldn't reject something on the ground that had a little bit of, began to decay or rot. And what is that rotting? That's fermentation. It's the sugars being broken down by the bacteria fermenting, creating a little alcohol, I might add, and, but teeming, teeming with bacteria. And we would, we would consume that, you know, when we were hungry, wouldn't turn it down just because the fruit ended up on the ground for crying out loud. And even to this day, we eat foods that are fermented uh, like sauerkraut and kimchi, for example, that are laden with huge amounts of bacteria that go on to inoculate the gut. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot going on with respect to the inoculation or what we imbibe. And that begins with passage through the birth canal. When we are born, we are anointed with the bacteria living in the birth canal. The bacteria in the vaginal uh, birth canal that we pass through gets into the baby's mouth and eyes and nose and ears and all over the skin. That's setting that child up for uh, better health. When we uh, look at the data that demonstrates that children born by C-section have about a two to threefold increased risk of type one diabetes and autoimmune mm. condition, have a similar increased risk for things like ADHD and even autism, we begin to wonder about what happens when we deprive that newborn of those bacteria and other organisms that he or she receives at that moment where that child enters the world. We're giving that kid a gift. I'm not saying that no one should have a C-section. Of course, there's a time and a place. But you know, here in America, 30% of children are born by C-section right now. It's hard to imagine that's necessary. Yeah, absolutely. So last question, we talked a lot about BDNF today, uh, this miracle grow, kind of this potent hormone in the brain. 
Uh, we've talked about building resilience and and supporting and strengthening the diversity of our microbiome. What are your daily habits, the things that you're doing on a regular basis to support BDNF levels, keep your brain super healthy, your microbiome, and really, really thrive? Uh, uh, it's, it's a very big question. And I, I think the most important supplement uh, vitamin that you can take is exercise. Mm. And uh, I... I it, here, the truth of the matter is you're interviewing me at 11 a.m. Uh, at 8, 8.15, I was in the gym. I was doing today leg work and back work. And it turns out that um, strengthening your muscles is a good thing to do. The muscles are an endocrine organ, hmm. meaning they secrete chemicals that influence other body parts, like the pancreas does, um, like the thyroid, for example. The muscles secrete BDNF, for example, yeah. uh, interleukin-6, which uh, explains why exercise amplifies the AMP kinase pathway, uh, cathepsin D, uh, B, rather, uh, um, various other uh, things that are created by muscles when they are stressed, which is a good thing. As it relates to BDNF, that's the best thing you can do is exercise. Endurance training is also very good, and people always ask, well, which is it? You know, what's is better? And I think, uh, again, it's diversity. Uh, you need strength training. Don't forget your legs. Uh, and then you need some cardiovascular work as well. And, and especially at my age, you need to stretch. Uh, if you don't stretch, you get injured. If you get injured, you stop exercising. That's bad. Uh, so that's how my day started. Um, and I won't eat uh, probably for another couple of hours. Typically what I do, because I'm comfortable with that. Um, and, um, you know, then I take uh, once I, I do have food, I'll take my vitamins. And what are they? Well, you know, they vary from time to time. But I take, as I mentioned, quercetin. I take more than uh, I recommend. I take 1,500 milligrams a day. But I think generally 500 milligrams a day is plenty. Uh, I take something called luteolin to bring down uric acid, 100 milligrams a day. Vitamin C, 500 milligrams a day. I take a supplemental prebiotic fiber made from acacia tree. Uh, I take a good probiotic, 5,000 units of vitamin D, uh, vitamin E, a methylated B complex, because I need that um, because of a certain genetic thing that I carry that means I have to have methylated B vitamins versus regular uh, B vitamins. I'm just going through my list trying to think uh, pretty much it. I do take magnesium, collagen, and uh, I take something interesting now, just started taking it called Himalayan tartary buckwheat. Hmm. And uh, HTB, uh, actually, it's a, a powder that you can even use as a meal replacement, but that has some really nice, what are called senolytic effects, helping your body rid itself of cells that are senescent or older and uh, immune cells that aren't functioning as well as they should. And I would be the first to tell you that my um, supplement program changes with time. Uh, I had been taking uh, an NAD precursor. I'm not taking that right now. There is one other thing I'm taking. I'm taking a sulforaphane-like product that has uh, been demonstrated to be effective. Uh, it seems like I'm taking a lot, and I am. And I'm really happy about my health. And <laughs> I know what my biological age is, and I know what my chronological age is. And I'm a lot younger biologically than I am in terms of the number of times I've passed around the sun. So that's a good thing. I want to keep going in that direction. Yeah, and if but, you're watching on video, you can see Dr. Perlmutter looks great. Um, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be 88. Unbelievable. Oh, 20 years. Yeah. If you had asked me to 
guess I probably would have said mid 60s. No, I'm 68, but I'll, I'm yeah, going yeah. to be 88 anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, You're going to live that long. Yeah, uh, I'm hoping. But uh, again, it uh, there's some sweat equity built up here, and that is exercise. I think the supplements are great, but they are supplements. They are supplementing a good diet. They're supplementing a, a good lifestyle. And uh, I think uh, we underestimate the value of a good night's sleep, not just in terms of the duration, but the quality of sleep that you get, mm. the depth of sleep that you get. I wear an aura ring and I, yeah. I'm very happy that most nights, you know, I'm getting, uh, I, I get a good score and I get a lot of good uh, deep sleep and REM sleep and all the things that you need. I spend as much time as I can out of doors and mm -hmm. uh, staying in touch with people. And that's, uh, you know, makes me feel good, that's for sure. But having said that, I can give you the science that tells you why those things are good. And we've touched upon them today. Yeah, that's so good. Well, thanks so much for your time. It's been a wonderful interview. And guys, if you want more in-depth information like this, check out The Brain Maker. I talked about it in the beginning of this uh, this interview. That is Dr. Perlmutter's best-selling book, New York Times best-selling book, all about this gut-brain connection. So The Brain Maker and you can find Dr. Perlmutter at drperlmutter.com. Any last words of inspiration for our audience here? Um, I would say yes. And that is that you have to be your own advocate. And, um, you know, my mission in life is, uh, I'm called the empowering neurologist. Why? Because yeah. I'm giving out this information that empowers people to make better choices. And we kind of live in a world where we're told just do whatever the heck you want. And when you have a problem, there'll be a pill for that. You know, as it relates to your brain, I, I wish there were, but there isn't. So I think mm -hmm. uh, we've got to do the best we possibly can to be proactive, not reactive. You know, keep that brain healthy and functional and it'll serve you well. But we have the tools. So that's what this is all about. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks again. And everybody will see you on a future interview. Be blessed. Well, that's all for this show. And I wanna thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on, or you wanna dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.